So we have been for the last couple of weeks taking a look at starting with a question, how do you know if someone is saved and looking for some answers, not from our own reasoning or what we've heard elsewhere, but going right into the Bible and taking a look at what Jesus said in his, in, and did in his interactions with people. And we're going to continue that. <clears throat> Before we go there, though, the couple conclusions that we've had in the two messages so far um, that we've really looked at what, the bio, what Jesus said and then drawn the conclusions from that. And the first one is just that salvation occurs in a person who has a changed heart. Something happens deep in the heart and there's a change, a cutting, a quickening there that goes on that, that, that does that. And the second thing is this. When a person has a truly changed heart, it always compels them to act upon that change. The change that occurred in the heart drives the action. Okay? Now, <clears throat> Jesus said also, I think this is from last week's message, Jesus said something very clear too. He said, by your fruit, you will recognize them. Where he was driving home this idea, how you know if someone is walking with God, he says, by your fruit or by their actions, you're going to know whether that's the case or not. An interesting thing happened this week. Um, we had our, our, our monthly prophecy team meeting, which we had one canceled back in, in January. I don't remember, people were out of town, it was bad weather, there was, for whatever reasons, we didn't have the meeting um, in January, and so we got together on Tuesday, and um, Mike Canale shared this on, uh, on this week, and he said, this is what he wrote down, he said, when a person changes the way they think, they'll change the way they act. That's when he was seeking the Lord, that's what he thought the Lord had said. He said again, when a person changes the way they think, They'll change the way they act. And then he gave as a scripture, Matthew 7, 20, which is when Jesus said, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Now that was given on Monday. You say, yeah, all he did was like regurgitate what was in the sermon on Sunday. Well, the interesting thing was he got that word and that scripture a month ago for that January meeting, which was canceled. And he held on to it and brought it. So before I had ever prepped Sunday's message, before I had even gone down this even route, I probably was thinking about this series, but I hadn't prepared the messages because they've only been going on for two weeks. God spoke to Mike as he was seeking God for the church. God, what would you say to us as a church? He had that. When a person changes the way they think, they'll change the way they act, and then Matthew 7.20, by their fruit, they will recognize them. I find those things very significant because it reiterates to me that God is trying to speak to us the question, are we listening? And he was working ahead of time to reiterate that idea, by their fruit, by people's fruit you'll recognize that a change of heart has following action in it. So we're going to keep on today looking at this question of how, how do you know if someone's saved? And instead of us coming up with our own ideas, we're just going to again look at another Biblical encounter, where in the situation that Jesus has, is one of my favorite actually encounters. Um, and then, and just prep for this thing, I got one more message to go next week. I contemplated whether to give that one, but I think it ties it together. Next week, we'll move away from what Jesus had to say, and we'll look at something out of the book of Acts, which is right after Jesus left the sea. Does that match up with, were they following what Jesus said? Were the, were the interactions there the same? So today, I want to read um, from... We're going to read the story from Luke 23, 32 to 43. And I realized when I opened my bag this morning that my Bible was left at home, which was a terrible thing. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for that, which I won't go into, because I had a weird week, end of the week. 
So, and it had to do with a car, which I, I got a car finally, and that's the reason that my Bible was left home, because my bag went for another reason this week. So, But fortunately, I have this thing right in front of me. It's going to take me right to where we want to go. Luke chapter 23, and we're going to start with verse 32. Okay? It says this. Now, the context is Jesus, it's the crucifixion. It's a crucifixion story. And it says this, Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. So when we get the classic picture of the three crosses with Jesus in the middle and the two on the sides, that's where it comes from because it specifically says that Jesus was crucified with those criminals one was crucified on his right the other was crucified on his left and jesus said father forgive them for they don't know what they're doing and they divided up his clothes by casting lots the people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him they said he saved others let him save himself if he's god's messiah the chosen one the soldiers also came up and mocked him they offered him wine vinegar and said if you're the king of the jews save yourself there was a written notice above him which read this is the king of the jews One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you're under the same sentence? We're punished justly for we're we're getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. So let's take a look at some of the characters in this story. First off, you've got Jesus, the central theme. He is the perfect Son of God. Never sinned, never did anything wrong. He's saying, then why in the world was he crucified as a criminal? They cooked up charges, the the Jews did, and when they actually tried to investigate, the only way they could actually get any evidence to quote-unquote convict him, was by people bearing false witness and lying about what they had heard him say. And actually, when you really look at the story of his trial and leading up to that, the only reason that he was crucified is because Pilate, the Roman leader at the time, wanted to keep peace. And he was afraid that if he let him go, which is what he thought he should do, that the Jewish people would make life a mess. There'd be a revolt or rebellion, and then he would be held accountable by Rome for the disruption in the area. So you have this Jesus, the perfect Son of God, didn't deserve that, but we also know part of God's plan, the innocent lamb slain for our sin. Now the other, the other characters, another set of characters here, the two criminals, one crucified on his left and one crucified on his right. Um, they were evildoers. These are all things in that word criminal. Evildoers. They were malefactors, which means they had committed crimes and had done things that were really bad. They were malicious, cunning, and treacherous. Other accounts, the other gospel accounts, some of them call them robbers. That's where the thief comes from. Not just criminals, specifically, one of the, it probably wasn't their only crime, because it sounds like they just had this whole thing of just a core of being bad. Okay? Now, the robbers were being crucified as a punishment for their crimes. Jesus is innocent. And he's crucified, like I said, for a lot of other reasons. Okay? Now, the other group of people you have there, there's another group of people, there's a whole bunch of people milling around. Some are Jesus' loyal followers, 
His, we, I think his mother was there. I think John the Baptist was the foot of the cross. There were other people there. But there were also lots of people. And it's kind of a weird thing. There were people there that were just watching the crucifixion, which is a pretty morbid, disgusting thing when you think about it, to actually go and just sit there to take in this horrible thing that happened where they would take men, in this situation, three men, and literally nail them to a cross. Nail them to a cross that looks that through their feet and through their upper parts of their hands, and then hang them there and drop them in there, and they sit there and watch them suffer and die. And there was a crowd that gathered when that happened to watch that. Actually, the Romans crucified people as a deterrent so that people would visibly see it publicly as a deterrent for what happens when you disobey Roman law. In this situation, there's a lot of people that were there watching that. Now, the interesting thing that happened is it's gross to think about the beginning that they were just drawn to this kind of thing there, but you know what? Humans are no different today than they were then. We're drawn to those gruesome spectacles. And you don't want to look, but you do look. And then other people are just drawn to those kinds of things. But the interesting thing, they didn't just stand there and watch. The people that were there sneered at Jesus, and they ridiculed him. These are some of the things they said, the people, the masses that were there. He saved others. Let him save himself if he's actually the Christ of God, the chosen one. And you can see in what they're saying this mockery. Let me say that again. He saved others. Let him save himself if he's actually the Christ of God, the chosen one. Another phrase that they said, come down from the cross if you're the Son of God. And that comes from Matthew's account. To get the fullness of it, you have to read the other gospel accounts. And Matthew records that that's what they, some said, come down from the cross if you're the Son of God. And also from Matthew, he saved others, but he can't save himself. The longer he's suffering and dying, and they're seeing him still on the cross, they mockingly say, he saved others, but he can't even save himself. Now how about this one from Matthew also? He's the king of the Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and then we'll believe in him. You can see the, the stuff. Uh, also from Matthew, he trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him, for he said, I'm the son of God. And that actually is a direct challenge. He said he's actually the son of God or that he has a trust in God. So let God come and rescue him to prove that God actually wants him rescued. Actually, if you read all those things, what they're doing is they're making fun of who Jesus claimed to be. He claimed to be the Son of God. He claimed to have power and might. He claimed to be able to, to be rescued if he needed be. And they're mocking that as he's in a spot of, of vulnerability. And they go on. They're basically challenging his authority, challenging his identity as the Son of God, the Messiah. And they're actually saying in a very mocking way, prove it. Prove it. The interesting thing is, Jesus did have the power to call on legions of angels that would have come and rescued him in a moment and would have set things right. But he willingly yielded to that because he understood that it was part of God's plan for the redemption of people like you and me. Okay? But it wasn't just the masses that were doing that. It also tells us that the rulers took part as well. The rulers were right in there casting the same insults. And so, again, Luke, the account that I read, just uses the word rulers, but if you go over to Matthew, it clarifies that. Matthew clarifies that amongst those rulers, they actually clarify them as religious rulers, which means the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders, which would be community leaders. People of prominence in Jewish culture were right there in the midst of it. The actual 
worshipers of God, if you will, at the time, the religious leaders were there hurling the same insults at Jesus. And if that wasn't enough, you've also got another group of people, which is the Roman soldiers, that join in mocking him as well. They say, it's interesting how each one clarifies it a bit differently. Now you've got these Roman soldiers who understand chain of authority, who are loyal to Caesar, and this is what they say, if you're the king of the Jews, then save yourself. Basically, if you're the king, you should be strong enough to see to it that you're saved. Because they understood that kings had power, but they're looking at this guy that they just nailed to the cross, and he does not appear to have any power and authority because this just happened to him. And so when nothing happens, they just continue to poke fun at him and make fun of him and ridicule him. And the interesting thing is, even the robbers that were crucified with him took part in this casting of ridicule and making fun of him. Now Luke just says one of, but if you read the Matthew account, he has it stating that at the beginning of the crucifixion, as they're nailed there, both robbers are making fun. And the Bible tells us that they hurled insults at Jesus. Now picture that, that, that scenario. Jesus is crucified, nailed to a cross, hanging and suffering. And you've got these two guys on both sides, also nailed to the cross in the same way, suffering. And it says that they're hurling insults at him. They're addressing him with disapproval and disappointment. They're using abusive speech towards him. They're criticizing him in such a way that it's abusive and an angry insulting. There's anger, there's angst in them, and they're, they're taking it out on Jesus and saying these things. And they speak with him very irreverently. In other words, they have no idea in that stage that he's actually the Son of God and the power that's sitting next, next to him, if you will. So it's quite this scene. Like I said, nearly everybody present there is against Jesus, and nearly everyone there is taking part at throwing insults at him. The reason I say not everyone, because his mother was there, and John was there, and we know that from other accounts. Okay, So not everybody was doing it. There were some that were weeping for him that were probably trying to be supportive of him, however you can support somebody who's nailed to a tree and you're not allowed to do anything to help him. Okay? All right. But then, in the midst of this craziness, something truly amazing happens. One of the thieves, one of the thieves, has a change of heart in the midst of this. Remember, both casting insult, making fun of him, angry, abusive, angst towards him, and as it continues, one of the thieves speaks up. Now, if you can figure that, they're both going at it, and the crowd's going on and on, and likely what happens is, as, the, as that's going on, one of the thieves stops, no longer casting insults. And then the other robber who is continuing to, he casts Another insult at Jesus. He lets it out again. All that anger, all that angst, he's going on and on. And now the other thief, the one who had stopped, he speaks up. And when he speaks up, he actually rebukes his fellow thief. And he says, he speaks to him, 
um, in a way to try to get in. He's actually, his, his statement to the other robber is very confrontational. Very confrontational. He's confronting his actions in insulting Jesus. And the hope in that confrontation is that he can actually change the man's behavior. He doesn't want to see Jesus being ridiculed and maligned anymore, and he's challenging him in that sense there. And his rebuke is, it's abrupt, it's curt, and it's biting. It's not this kind, it's, it's a very cutting comment that he makes to him, showing great disapproval at what his fellow robber is actually saying to Jesus. And he actually, in front of everybody else, he takes the other man that's dying, he takes him to task in front of everybody. Now, we realize again, it's the same robber who earlier, just could have been moments earlier, at least mo- it could have been an hour, who knows exactly how long, time had elapsed a little bit, who had actually already been doing the same things towards Jesus. And so my question is, what happened? What happened that he went from making fun, ridiculing anger at Jesus and taking it out on him verbally, to all of a sudden rebuking the other one that does what happened. I'll tell you what happened. That man, as he lay there dying, had a change of heart. His heart changed. There was something that occurred. We don't know exactly what or how, but he was convicted in his heart that what he was saying and what he was doing was wrong. He was cut. He was pricked in his heart. And that changed heart in that time frame, which is short, that, that, that change in his heart actually changed his actions as well. Okay? He could no longer stand by and let the attack on Jesus go on. He needed to do something about it, and he speaks up. His statement, what does he say? He yells over at the other thief, Don't you fear God? It's important that we catch not just the generalized action, but what he says. He says, don't you fear God? This is the same man who's sitting next to God in human form, who's casting insults now with his change of heart, is saying, don't you fear God? Obviously, again, something changed to make him fear God. Perhaps, I'm just speculating, I don't know, perhaps he had observed how Jesus was reacting to the insults. We don't know a whole lot about what Jesus did as they're hurling insults. We don't know how he reacted. The Bible says he was what? As he was silent as a sheep before the slaughterers. He didn't, he didn't defend himself when they were making fun of him, when they talked about, you know, you come down, defend yourself if you're really, if you're really God, if you're really a king. Perhaps the 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 way Jesus responded got through to the sky. And perhaps this man finally was, you'd think, by the time that they laid him out on that cross and nailed the first nail, he recognized what was going on, but maybe as it continued forward, he's starting to look his own death square in the face. And it's crushed in his heart. We don't know why the change. We don't know what occurred to make that change, but we actually see the results of the change in the way his response does. And then he goes on and says this. We're getting punished justly, speaking to the thief again. We're getting punished justly. We're getting what we deserve. In that moment, not only does he, he brings the idea of fear of God and respect of God into it, he says he owns his own guilt. I am getting what I deserve, he says. 
I have been a thief, a robber, a bad person, and I'm being crucified and killed for it. I'm getting what I deserve. He knows that he deserves punishment. And interesting, in that moment, he shows remorse and he shows sorrow for what he's done. And add to that also that the dramatic change of action in what you actually have is as a thief dying next to Jesus on the cross, you have an actual pictorial representation of what repentance actually looks like. Which again, if you've been following where we've been, when on the day of Pentecost, when people were cut to the heart, they said, what must we do? And Peter's initial response was what? Repent and be baptized. You'll find that over and over again when people ask that direct question, oftentimes, what do we need to do? They bring this idea of repentance out there. And what's repentance? Repentance is remorse and sorrow for your sin, but not just an emotional feeling, but the remorse and the sorrow is so strong for what you've done wrong that you, are, you, you change and walk away from that old lifestyle and you walk towards God's ways. And this man had deep sorrow for what he did, and his behavior changed to come into compliance with what God said. He owned his sin. I'm getting what I deserve. And he says, you know, and he goes on to that, and we've already seen the change of action, no longer hurling insults, but actually defending Jesus. He says this, but this man has done nothing wrong. This man has done nothing wrong. As he sits there dying, and he's watching Jesus, First, he's angrily accusing him. Now, he's defending him. He's done nothing wrong. He's innocent. He recognizes it. It's, a, it's absolutely amazing when you stop and look this in the immense physical suffering and actually literally probably within hours of death, what a changed heart will do. He didn't care anymore. He stopped what he was doing. He speaks out against corruption. He speaks out against what they're saying about Jesus but it doesn't stop there. And now the best thing he says, Jesus, it's interesting how it works though. We see his changed behavior, result of a changed heart. We see him rebuking his buddy. We see him fearing God. And then we see him say, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. We have no idea what this man understood theologically regarding Jesus and his kingdom. My guess is, there was a big goose egg of an understanding of who actually stood behind him, beside him. He maybe had heard about this Jesus. Maybe he'd even heard him preach sometime. I don't know. But there's this massive transformation that goes on. We don't know if he had this great theological understanding he's the Son of God who's being crucified on this cross so that I can have my forgiveness of sins. I don't think so because actually the people that walked with Jesus, his disciples, they didn't get it till after he was gone. So I don't think that this guy really had a theological understanding from the Old Testament about what was going on. We don't know if his understanding of this whole thing of who Jesus was was skewed or accurate. We don't know anything about that. We don't know that... We do know this, though. What we do know is that in the state of having a changed heart and being in great need, that he calls out to Jesus for help. Why do we know that? Because he does it. He turns after he's done these things. His, his possible last words were, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. When he's in that pinch with a changed heart, he cries out to Jesus. Calls out for help. 
It's interesting that when all else was gone and with that changed heart, the changed heart led him to trust that there was something that Jesus could do. Without having a good theological background, there was something about Jesus sitting next to him that he had this feeling, this, 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 this whatever, that Jesus could do something for him. All right? Isn't it interesting what Jesus says? Doesn't hesitate, doesn't wait. As far as we know, no other conversation. He just says, I tell you the truth, today you'll be with me in paradise. What Jesus actually does, as all this unfolds and the man cries out to him, he assures him that I heard your request and you can trust me. You can trust me about what I'm going to say next. When he says, I tell you the truth, he says, I hear And what I'm going to tell you next, you can trust. And then he promises him that today, this very day, you're going to be with me in paradise. Or what we would call heaven. In other words, what he's saying, he didn't use the words because crucifixion was rough. It had to be short and sweet. You know, basically when we both die, both of us are going to end up in the same place today with my Father in heaven. He basically told the man, using different language, when he says, you'll be with me in paradise, he basically told the man, you're saved. You're secure. You're okay. You've inherited an eternal life. You've gone from spiritual death to spiritual life. Yes, you're going to die physically, but it's not going to end there. You're going you're to wake up on the other side in heaven. So what did Jesus base that statement on. What did he base it on? And we can go right back. I think you'll find if you really think through that, what does he base it on? Why does he say this? I tell you the truth. You're going to be with me today. He bases it on the condition of the man's heart again. Jesus had actually observed real time the change of this man's behavior. From hurling insults at him to rebuking somebody who did that, to saying, don't you fear God. The total change sees it right for him. And now what he sees is before anger and frustration and angst and a hard heart, now he sees a soft heart who's ready to receive, who's requested help. And it's interesting. <laughs> I, I, I got to say this. So make a couple. He didn't leave the guy hanging. Somebody would have thought about that. That's what you should use there, but I'm sorry about that. But he didn't leave him in this, in this weird spot. He didn't make him wait. He didn't do anything like that. The repentant heart had happened. He'd cried out to the place he was supposed to cry out to, and Jesus immediately responds and gives him assurance and gives him confidence and gives him peace of mind that things are going to be okay and you're going to get to the very thing you want, which is... And I don't know, we don't even know... What was the guy thinking, paradise? Does he know, you know in your kingdom? I don't think he knows a whole lot about that. He just knew that there's something about Jesus that gave him hope that he could do something. And he cries out and Jesus meets him. And it's all based on a change of heart accompanied by action that others could see. You know, uh, that fits so far with the other two accounts we've given, which was Zacchaeus, right? Zacchaeus comes into Jesus' presence, and what does he do? He sells all that he has, or he, he's willing to, what, 
take half of his wealth and give it to the poor, and the people he cheated as a tax collector, I'll give them four times back what I stole from them. He has a change of heart, which we, again, we don't know how it happened, but we see by his actions. And Jesus said what? Today, salvation has come to this house. And then last week's message, we see one that doesn't have a happy ending, the rich young man who asked the question, what do I need to do? And after a long discourse, when Jesus actually gets to the spot to sell what you have and give it to the poor, the man walks away sad because he's not willing to do it. He didn't get that same response because his heart hadn't changed. Some takeaways. How much time does it take to repent and change? How long does it take to have a changed heart? How long does it take to repent? According to this story, not very long. At best, start to finish, hours. I want to lay out to you in the twinkling of an eye, in a moment of time, when a person goes from a hard heart to a soft heart and cries out. It can happen that quickly. This all occurred too when a man was dying an excruciating death. He didn't have time to study his Bible. He didn't have time to get theological insights to talk to his friend. He had none of that. This all occurred while he was stripped bare, dying. So, another takeaway. People can have deathbed conversions that are real. This man did. He's not in a deathbed. He's on a cross. People can come to Christ for forgiveness of their sins when they're dying. I've actually shared this, not this story, but gotten into conversations with people that really it's a stumbling block when they find out that people can live a horrible life, doing bad things to people and being abusive and nasty their whole life and on their deathbed can come to Christ and be forgiven of their sins and enter heaven. And they say, that's not fair. Look at all the pain and the hurt. Okay? Here's what we can do, though. We can trust that God sees the heart. He's not going to let somebody into heaven. He's not going to say, I tell you the truth, today you'll be in paradise if there's really not a changed heart. And there's not action to go with that. Not going to happen. He's just. Jesus shared parables about the fairness of late-in-life conversions or last-minute conversions because he knew that we were going to struggle with it as humans. Jesus said in those parables, which if you want to read those parables, if you grab one of the devotionals off the information booth as you go out or look them up on the website, they're given the scripture passages that are there and you can read those things. Jesus actually gave several parables about late in life decisions to follow God where people were forgiven and moving on. It's given in story form. He said that they, they happen, it's okay. He also uses somewhere, as it's said in the New Testament, that some people actually escape death, spiritual death, and enter into heaven smelling of smoke because they were so close to not making that decision. They said they make it to heaven and their very garments smell of smoke, which is an allusion to hell where there's an unquenchable fire. They're that close to hell that their, their, their clothing actually smells of smoke when they enter heaven. 
They're there and they rejoice, but it was close. This man was close. Because the other thing that happens, what if he loses consciousness on the cross before he yields to the changed heart? I warn you today not to wait for a deathbed conversion. Don't wait. You don't know if you're going to have time at the very end of your life to change. Okay? You don't know, and I don't know, how I'm going to leave this life. We also don't know if Jesus is going to return before we die. In that case, there won't be time. It's going to be in the twinkle of an eye, he takes his people to be with him. You and I don't know what the end of our life or the end of time on earth is going to look like. It could be long and drawn out, an illness. We could actually be in a horrible car accident and have that, that, that 30 seconds or one minute of lucidity where all of a sudden we say, yes, Jesus, I want to be right with you and have a changed heart. But we're not guaranteed that. We're not guaranteed that. You don't know if the people around you are going to have time to change. And I'll go a step further. None of us know. It's a dangerous place to put off making a commitment to follow Christ. When we feel that we should, it's a dangerous thing to put that off. Because the longer you put that off, I'm going to say this, the less likely you are in the last minute to make that choice. Because you go again, what's the sign of a truly changed heart? action accordingly. I would lay out there that even if there's a spot inside of you that is believing that you need to get right with God, and there's things you need to do about that, when you refuse to do so, you're like the rich young man that we talked about. You're not willing. And the longer you stay in that not willing state, the more your heart crusts over to the point where you might not make the choice even when faced with death. In this situation too, another takeaway we can get, there wasn't time for prayer. There wasn't time for baptism. There wasn't time to have a class or anything of the sort. I guess you say there was always time for a prayer. But if you understand how crucifixion goes, it was very hard to say anything verbally, literally, physically, because of what you had to do hanging by your hands. The only way you could talk, they say, or to say anything anybody could hear, would be to step up to take the pressure off your arms. But when you do so, what do you got in your feet? Two nails. It was excruciating to push yourself up enough to be able to say anything. So we don't have any account of a prayer. There clearly was not baptism happened. There was no class. Nobody led this guy. Jesus didn't lead this guy into a theological understanding of what being saved was all about. None of that happened. The salvation this man received was based on the change in his heart. Jesus observed that change in heart because of the actions that that man did. He was obedient in that moment to God's truths. Don't you fear God? The Bible tells us that we're supposed to fear and honor God. And he goes on and calls out to him. And he goes on and does this. There's a turning of a former way of life, even though it's only, only minutes or hours long of seeing the fruit in that. He has, he's turned. 
And he, it's interesting too. It's all right there in this, in this hanging on a cross. There's a change of heart, a change of action, and a crying out to God. All three are right there. Clearly stated in Scripture. We don't usually picture it that way. We picture it in an unfolding thing in a person that we're relating to. But this is one, a man hanging on a cross has a change of heart, a change of action, and cries out to Jesus. It's an actual illustration of a passage. Romans chapter 10, verses 11 and 13 says this. As Scripture says, anyone who believes in Him or believes in Jesus will never be put to shame. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so here you have this man, anyone who believes in him. Something happened to that thief that took him from hurling insults to rebuking another man. He actually believed he was the innocent Son of God and whatever understanding he had of that. And then he does another thing listed in Romans 10, which was he cries out to Jesus. And it says anybody that truly calls on the name of Jesus will be saved. It changed heart, cry out to Jesus, salvation comes. And that's exactly what happened to this man. I want to encourage you that you and I need to continue to share the good news of Jesus Christ with those around us. That's another takeaway. What they do do with it is between them and God. I want to lay this out there. Perhaps you're sharing the good news, the truth about who God is, the truth of who Jesus is and what He's done, Perhaps your sharing gives God something to draw on at some point in their life. Maybe what you tell them now gives God something to draw on if they happen to have that last second or those last minutes in life where they're thinking through things. Perhaps what you share in the Holy Spirit using it will soften the person's heart to lean in God's direction over time. You can't We've talked about this. We can't know, we can't, we can't see a person's heart. Because we bring it back again. If you get nothing else out of this series, salvation is the result of a changed heart. It's a changed heart. The only thing that you and I will ever have the opportunity to see is not the actual heart, but the actions that come from a changed heart. And that's where Jesus said again, by your fruit you'll see him. You'll know him. I want to encourage you that you may share some things. And it may not look like nothing's going on, but you don't know what's going on in a person's heart. You don't know when you share with them the good news of Jesus Christ, when you share why you do what you do, when they ask you to do something and your conscience will not let you do it because it's counter to what God says. And they ask you, well, come on, do it. And then you give an explanation, and maybe they even laugh at you. You don't know what that will do in a person's heart. How it can be one of the things that the Spirit of the living God uses to actually take that hard heart and begin to soften it so that it can actually be changed and lead a person to salvation. There was something about hanging on a cross with Jesus that got to the thief. There's something about being in the presence of Jesus that has a tendency to affect a person's heart. Jesus was a very, uh, we don't look at it this way, but Jesus was a very polarizing individual when he walked this earth. You couldn't very easily walk a middle line. 
because the cost was too high. You were either going to believe that he was the Messiah or you would actively resist him. Jesus had a, has a, his, his life then and it's no different now. Interaction with Jesus has a tendency to impact our heart. To go to that very heart. And what we do with that impact determines whether we have the soft, changed heart or we remain hard-hearted. And I want to say this too. Like I said, being in the presence of Jesus changed that thief's heart. Perhaps. Maybe. Just maybe. Remember last week we said the rich young man? We would say at the beginning by looking at the questions he asked of Jesus, he's on the right track. His heart's soft. He really wants answers. He's ready to convert. And in the end, he walks away sad because he wasn't ready. And he wasn't willing to do what was necessary to walk with Jesus. This man starts out what? Hurling insults at Jesus. He had lived an evil life. He was a bad man. And now he's hurling insults at Jesus. But then he changes. Perhaps his heart wasn't as hard as we think it was at the beginning. We said the same thing. Perhaps the rich young, rich young man's heart wasn't as soft as we give it credit for. Maybe this man's heart wasn't as hard as we think it was. Even though it looked like it was by action, maybe it was a lot closer to conversion to God than we, we give it credit for. Again, you and I can't tell what's in a person's heart. My guess is this man's heart was a lot softer than his lifestyle showed, style showed. And you know what? Many of you, many of you would look at yourself. I put the tough guy or the tough gal facade on for years. <laughs> but really, when you peeled away the layers, my heart was anything but hard and anything but strong. Okay? We're reminded again as a takeaway from this that God sees the heart. God judges and He interacts with people according to the condition and the state of the heart that He sees. God gets a lot of uh, flack for that because you and I as humans, we think we know what a person's at. We think we know what their heart's like. And we make judgments accordingly. And then when God doesn't do what we think He should do in a person's life because of what we think is in the heart, we can get frustrated or we can get angry or we can get hurt or whatever else. But God sees what's actually in the heart. My heart, your heart, and the heart of everyone. And He judges and interacts accordingly. My encouragement to you, first off, in your own life, is that you would pray that you would have a soft heart at all times. That when Jesus comes calling, your soft heart would hear that the people you're face to face with whisper prayers that God would give them a soft heart, that they would yield to his presence. Let's keep praying that they would have those soft hearts so that in their time of need, they won't shake their fist at God like one thief did and stayed in that state, but would have a change of heart like the other thief did that actually humbly cried out to God and asked for help. You know, one of the things, you, you preach a, a series like this, 
I think I told you at the beginning of this, and I'm not going to tie this up with a neat little bowl and, and teach you a five-step lesson to be assured that anything is going to happen. If anything, I'd probably leave you with more questions. But the beautiful thing is you and I don't need to know the content of a person's heart. We do need to hear what Jesus said, by their fruit you will recognize. But when, a person, when we're unsure, we need to continue to share the truth and, and help people and lead them by the hand of places where they're going to continually be in Jesus' presence and also hear God's truth. Because those two things will impact a person's heart and can lead them into the right place and cause them to make a decision. You can't change a person's heart. I don't care what you do or how you do it. You can be used of God to be a tool but you have no power to change anybody's heart. In fact, you don't have the power to change your own heart. All you can do is respond to the, to the Spirit's pull that softens your heart. We are responsible to do what? To do everything within our power to keep people in a place so that they can be in God's presence. We talk about this as, as church leadership. Our prayer is that when you show up here on a Sunday, when you go to your home group, when you go to the formal meetings that we call meetings at Grace Community Church, that you will encounter the presence of the living God. Because we know that what we really need as human beings is to be in God's presence because that will change hearts. And when hearts are changed, actions change. And we realize this, and I've been doing this long enough to know that if God doesn't bring a heart change, everything else that I do is wasted. It doesn't have any effect. You say, why do you keep going? Why do you keep doing this? For the same reason that the apostles did, for the same reason that Christians through the generations have done, to continue to lead people by the hand into the presence of the living God and to share truth in the hopes that they'll respond to it. That's what our call is. And I want to encourage you to do that and pray accordingly. In fact, join me right now as we pray. Heavenly Father, we're reminded again that you look at the heart. Lord, forgive us for being short-sighted and thinking that we, we attack everything intellectually and figure it all out. Lord, I know that, that you can speak in our minds and you can lead us in our thinking and our reasoning, Lord, but help us to recognize that you alone see the heart. And Lord, you're just in what you find there and you judge accordingly. Lord, I pray that you would prick each one of us, Lord, that we would see to it that we do whatever we can to come before you in your presence and be yielded to you so that our hearts can be soft and to be changed. And Lord, as we interact with other people, I pray our prayer life would be that you would work in their lives to grant them a soft heart. That they would humble themselves to cry out to you. Lord, help us to do our part to, to live lives that are examples of what a soft heart looks like, what a changed heart looks like with the actions that accompany. And Lord, help us to be willing to boldly give an explanation when people don't understand why we're doing and we can explain it's because God changed my heart. Help us to be bold and to be confident to share those things. And Lord, help us to be bold and confident in moments, whether a person seems like they're interested in that moment or not, but when they ask the question and the answer is Jesus or the answer is some scriptural truth, help us to boldly declare that, remembering what you said. It's the truth that sets people free. It sets people free from the damage and the destruction eternally that's caused by a hard heart because the truth actually can be that thing that can soften a heart. I pray, Lord, that you would do that 
by your power and by your strength, that you would change our lives and change our hearts so that we can give that away to other people. And Lord, I pray that we would have encounters just like Jesus had with that man on the cross. Where when they ask, will you remember me? Or what can you do? Or what will I do when I cross this life? We can give hope just like Jesus did. That with a changed heart, a person can be with God in paradise later that day. Lord, we thank you that you've made a way. And I pray we would continue to glean your understanding in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I want to close really with three quick things, um, but before I get to those three things, I want to remind you that we, Sarah, my wife and I are available to pray with you today for whatever thing you might have in mind. We're right up here in the front. Um, the three things, one, if you have not called on the name of the Lord like Kyle read to us from Romans, please consider doing that today. Why wait? Okay. The next thing, if you have called on the name of the Lord, which I bet most of you have, I would encourage you to be asking God, God, give us hearts for people, that we would see the people you've placed in our lives, that we would point them to you. And then the last thing, if you have called on the name of the Lord, say also, God, reveal to me my sin. Keep my heart soft, because it's not a one time and you're done with sin, because we're constantly struggling with sin. And so be asking, continually repenting, asking God to reveal to you the things in you that are displeasing to him. Okay? And that's it for me. Thank you.